Hi, I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. We're back in Ecclesiastes, and this is a 15th podcast in our sermon series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. Our service is live-streamed every Sunday at 10 a.m. from our YouTube channel. Join us as Bruce Bentley continues our series with a sermon titled, A Greater God. Welcome to the new year. My name is Bruce Bentley, by the way. I'm the pastor around here. And uh, last week, I, I got all misty-eyed about, you know, moving on from Christmas and throwing out the Christmas tree. I'm still a little, it's, ours is now gone. Uh, and I'm still a little depressed about that. So I don't know if you're in the same boat. But as we move on away from Christmas and New Year's, there are other things that have to come down or be put away, the decorations, some of the stuff we pull out. And uh, if, if you're like us, you get Christmas cards in the mail, uh, these, these beautiful pictures of, of families that you know or maybe you don't know anymore and the Christmas letters that come with them. You got to do something with those. Uh, so I was thinking about this past, that this past week. Uh, I, I went, wanted to find a typical uh, picture of what we'd like our families to look like. I think this is from way back, Father, Father Knows Best. So naturally, I, I move towards that show because of the title. But there's, there's a lot of things I like about this picture. Everybody's happy. Dad is the focus of the picture, you know, everybody cleaned up well, uh, and Dad can just kind of bask in the glory of his family paying attention to him and loving him. So a lot of Christmas pictures, Christmas cards, the things you get from other families uh, are maybe similar. Maybe Dad isn't the focus, but everybody looks happy. Everybody cleans up nice. Aren't you so glad, for those of you who are old enough to remember the era before digital photography, when you actually had to go develop film somewhere, and you're waiting to get your photos, and you're hoping some of them turned out. But now, we don't have to approach that life like that anymore. We can take thousands of pictures, no big deal, and you hope, well, you're pretty sure you're going to get a couple that turned out out of thousands of pictures, right? <laughs> well, you hope they will anyway. And then the best ones make the mailer, right? Or the, the best one is the one that you send out. Uh, typically, you don't send out this one, right? So I'm not saying that your family looks like that. I'm not saying mine does either. But those moments also happen, right? And as we think back over the past year, maybe you had some moments like that in your life with your family a little unpredictable or out of control, or maybe there's issues going on. Anyway, I spent some time looking back over some things that we had talked about going through this series of Ecclesiastes. Um, I spent some time actually looking at old sermons <laughs> from the past four months. And, uh, well, this, actually, these pictures work on different levels. Because this is what I'd like to think the sermon series is like. And that's probably more like what it actually is. So I, I get that. I understand. I know, you know, it's, it's painful. Have you ever written something uh, and you go back a while later and read it and like, I said that? You know, 
So I'm praying for you that you can survive some of There are times, okay, I'm just going to tell you the truth. There are times that as a pastor, I wish I could go back and do that one again. <laughs> as you read back and look at the notes. Uh, so, yeah, sometimes it's like that. Uh, but here's the deal. As I look back over where we've been at, if you're visiting this morning, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, ancient wisdom literature, pre-Jesus, uh, and looking at how that book of Ecclesiastes points us towards Christ coming, points towards the gospel, uh, but doesn't have the answers. And in fact, as I've shared numerous times, I've, I've always avoided the book because it always depressed me. Uh, you know, where is the gospel? Where is the good news? Where is this going? So as I look back this past week, all this stuff, I just feel kind of piles up in my mind and on my heart. And uh, we want to finish this book this month before we go on to other things. But I felt like, man, there's so much here for anybody that is just joining us. Or, or uh, if you've forgotten, because we kind of took a break during Advent, I felt the, the weight of, man, we really need to have kind of a recap, a catch-up Sunday, uh, to look back one, before we put you know, the first 10 chapters aside, to look back one more time to remind ourselves of what's been going on so that we can set up in the best possible way what happens in the last two chapters. Because, I'm telling you, the, where the preacher of Ecclesiastes takes us in the last two chapters, these are the, this is the money part of the message. It really is building to this high point of his sermon that lasts 12 chapters. And really, like any book of the Bible, if you're going to read it, you've got to read it in context. You've got you to dive into the whole thing as the whole context then teaches you and it informs other verses, other chapters. The whole message has to come together. So, we're going to take uh, this morning to look back, and there's no way I can cover, you don't want me to try to cover 10 chapters in one sermon, so I'm going to give some high points that as I was thinking and I was praying, okay, what is it that we got to land on? What is it that we got to deal with this morning? I'm going to give her that picture. There's that. So, a response to where we've been at, I, I narrowed it down to three things, wouldn't be a sermon without three, so here we go. The first one is this, as I look back, as I ponder, as I think about where the first 10 chapters have led me and I hope is leading us, the first point is this, a growing weariness with the way things are. I said, I've always struggled with this book. It always left me kind of weary, kind of depressed uh, with all this talk about vanity, vainness, uh, everything is a breath and it comes and it goes and meaningless depending on your translation. Where where's the good in this? Uh, the things that we struggle with, life under the sun, uh, the, the striving for more stuff, more money, uh, more pleasure, more material, material gain in this world under the sun that is dysfunctional and filled with uh, brokenness and even sin, right? And even if you don't think that you're a greedy person, if you're not at that level wanting more and more and more all the time, uh, that for some of it, maybe many of us, and especially the worldwide many of us, uh, for those of us that if more just means surviving, right? More may not mean excess, ridiculous amounts. More is mean just getting through the day. 
So no matter where you're at on that spectrum, what, what more means to you, this book keeps hitting us in the face. It's like a punch in the throat. So many times we're, we're a, this book approaches us with, you're not going to get that either. You may not even survive at the end of the day. That's the general weariness that I feel as I go back and as I read over. So there's many examples in this book. I'm going to give us just one here to kind of remind us where we've been from chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And as we looked at that word crooked, we, we realized that he's not talking about crooked in the sense of sinful, crooked in the sense that you just know it's not right. Okay? So who can make straight what God has made not right? And there's plenty of things in life uh, that we have to deal with or even struggle with that we know maybe instinctively, where you feel it in the depth of your soul, this is not right. And God has made those things, and here we are in the middle of those things, and then what do we do with them? A well-known American preacher by the name of James Montgomery Boyce, maybe, maybe some of you heard of him or read one of his many books, prolific author and scholar and preacher, uh, was a pastor of a large church in Philadelphia for two-plus decades, I believe. So this very lengthy, very fruitful ministry that he had. Well, back in the year 2000, and I believe it was right around Easter's time, uh, April of 2000, he discovered he had cancer. He was diagnosed with cancer, and it was a very aggressive form of cancer. And he survived, I think, only two months after that, and he was gone. So uh, what struck me, I ran across this in a book I was reading, what struck me is his, his farewell sermon. So he had just enough time between diagnosis and leaving this earth that he could actually address his church. And by that point, everybody knew that he was on the way out. So what do you say? I mean, think of that in the, in the midst of, I'm just trying to grasp what God has put in front of me, and then helping his church of many hundreds of people now deal with. I mean, everything looks so great, and everything's going so well, and now you, are, you have terminal cancer. So one of the questions that he threw out, I think I've got it on a slide here. There, there it is. If God does something in your life, would you change it? So let that settle in for a second. Here's a man, terminal cancer. And he deals with his head on. He wants his church, and really the benefit of all of us, to grapple with this, with this question. God has brought something into your life, and you don't like it. Would you, if you, if you could, would you change it? Now, there, there are many things that God brings that are positive, and we don't really take the time to count them up, usually, and continue to cultivate a grateful heart in response, you know, certainly we'll accept the blessings, right? Uh, nobody's going to change that. Uh, yeah, bless me. Great. Sounds good. But the other things that come in that we 
don't consider necessarily, they don't seem to be, they certainly don't feel like a blessing, like what Boyce is going through, if, if you could, would you? Would you change it? Now, he goes on to say in that farewell message that if you did, let's say, yeah, I, I don't want to suffer uh, terminal cancer, I would change that. But if you did try to change something that God brought into your life, you'd only make it worse. That's where Boyce led, and there's much more to the sermon, but that's, that was the direction that he led them in. Think about it. Would you change it? Well, if you did, you wouldn't make it better. Why? You're not God. There are plenty of things we'd like to address and, and change and make better, more pleasant, or easier, right? I would rather not have to struggle with whatever this is that God has brought into my life. It makes me tired. I'm weary of it. I'm, I'm sure you can think of something right now. I know I can. I don't like this situation, yet God has put it there, and he has made both, as the verses said, we just looked at, he's made both prosperity and adversity. He is sovereign Lord over all of those things. And even if I could try to change things, I would, I would agree with boys. I would certainly make it worse. So at least part of the message of Ecclesiastes is, and it, I believe over and over it reminds us that we're not in charge in our little place in the universe, are we? Uh, that may make us tired, but there's no way we can improve on God's plan because of what we can see and what we can deal with. We have to be reminded, especially because we prefer to be our own little gods, right? We have to be reminded by the preacher over and over again that we're not. And you can try, but you're going to fail. Now, all of that, that's heavy. We start off with a real heavy thought, right? But Ecclesiastes keeps kind of banging away at that drum to open up our eyes. The preacher wants our eyes open to that very fact. I am not in charge of the universe. I am not even in charge of lunch today. <laughs> you know, much less the universe. I am not up to the pay grade of being God. And we need to be reminded of that. In fact, I think we need to have that shouted in our face over and over again. A second response to Ecclesiastes is, as I read it, as I consider what these points are, where I fit in the universe, I need to have an expanding, and that's an action, so it's the ING on purpose, an expanding view of God. Okay, Let me give you a passage here from chapter 8. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, Solomon, the preacher says, and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot find it out. So let those words sink in, reread them, keep looking at the screen or your Bible, if you have your Bible open, keep thinking about what he's saying. I saw all the work of God, now maybe not completely, absolutely 100% all of it, but as his mind is expanding through his experiences, through the struggles, through the things he has 
told us that he has tried out, that he's experimented with in his life. He's seeing where that's going. And as at least a partial result of that, he is getting a, a, a bigger view of who God is. Anybody heard of the, uh, a man by the name of A.W. Tozer? Okay, uh, probably a lot of people have read some of his devotional, his devotional works are cl- considered classics. Uh, 20th century preacher and author. Here's something he said I ran across recently. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. That's from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. The, the way that you imagine God to be, you own that, whether you realize it or not, whether that's really a conscious thing that I've tried to establish in my mind, this you know, certain view of God, uh, because of a variety of factors and issues and things in our life as we grow up and things we experience, we put together an image of God, this visual of God, of who we think he is and, and, and what he's like and, and what he does, I believe there's a lot of truth to that. The God that we respond to, there, there's an image there. So then the question is, what does that God look like? What it, what's his character like? How does he interact with you? What is it that he does? What are his priorities? And the way that we pray, let me get real personal here with, with all of us, uh, the way, I, mean, I don't know if we've got a, any, anybody who's into the prosperity gospel and we think that God exists only to bless us and make our lives better or whatever. But even if you reject a prosperity gospel, which I hope you do, then there are other ways that are more subtle that we still kind of think that way. What motivates us, maybe most ev- evangelical churches, what motivates us in general to really pray when we want something? Right? I mean, we're not, we've got this image of God that he's there to give me what I need slash want when I need it. So, there is nothing wrong by presenting your petitions to God he wants to hear. So, I'm not saying that it's bad to ask of and to petition God. All I'm saying is the extraordinary amount, the lopsidedness of our prayer lives tend to reveal what we think God is really truly about. I've been in four or five different churches and staff uh, in my life, and uh, usually when the church wants to organize people to pray, uh, church-wide, let's push for prayer, what is it about? Tell me. Building. Finances. To get from God what I want. Now, those things are kind of prosperity things. I want to prosper right now. I want the bad stuff to go away, and I want more money and stuff. So that reveals, you know, it's, I hope that's a little bit painful. It reveals kind of how we pursue God or how we imagine God to be. I mean, what if, what if our, our prayer life resembled more of just wanting God for God? Just to know God, just to appreciate God. God, just to enjoy 
what, who he is and how he's done things and how he's released me from, the, from, well, what I was into this new creation that he offers to me freely to enjoy his presence on and on, whether or not I'm immediately receiving something from him. Our image of God forms us. It pushes us in a certain direction. So, here's a question for all of us this year. Are you in a place that you're ready to have your image of God challenged, changed, adapted? Are you in a place where you're willing to have God and the church push you into a whole new appreciation for who God is and response? If the mental image needs to go away, are you willing to do that so that Scripture, God's Word, can then, along with the encouragement and admonition and the fellowship and the community of the believers, the church, are you, are you willing to be challenged by God through His Word to change that image, to go to a place maybe where you haven't been before? I ran across another quote. I've got a bunch of quotes today. Uh, a guy by the name of J.D. Greer, love his books. Uh, and uh, the most recent book I've been reading is called Not God Enough. And it challenged me. I hope it challenges you this morning as far as our image of God and who he is in our lives. A God we can predict, instruct, and control is not a God who will captivate our affections or command our devotion. He's not God enough. He's a God we can never really trust because he is not wise or glorious enough to account for the glories and tragedies of our existence. Because we have made him small enough to be understood, he is no longer big enough to be worshipped. Now, he's not saying understood in any way. You have to understand the broader context. Certainly through his word, he is, to a certain degree, knowable and understandable and enabling us to respond to him. So in, that's, in any way, but if, if God is small enough that you think you've got him figured out, you're not worshiping God. You are worshiping your idea, your image of God, uh, which is probably looks a lot more like you than God himself. So maybe we all need a refresher I think we do, in how we see God, and if our vision of him is expanding or the same or shrinking. Now, we're not going to end there. One more for this morning. A growing weariness of the way things are, yep. An expanding view of God, I hope so. And an increasing ache for something better. So many times throughout the first 10 chapters, uh, there, at least as I've read it and as I've preached it and as I've tried to get you guys to engage with it, uh, we're left wondering and questioning and I even think a kind of a heartache for something more, something better the end of the story. Now, the preacher doesn't know the end of the story. He doesn't know Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus comes. Yet, I still think there is an aching 
for something more, something better, something that finally ultimately satisfies? What's the answer at the end of the question is where he keeps pointing us. So back in chapter 10, uh, three things that we pointed out right before we took a break before Advent, things that uh, the preacher throws right at us, Demand, things that are demanding, delightful, and dangerous. So uh, you can go back and read the, you really need to read the entire chapter. We're not going to take time on that right now. But three quick highlights. Demanding, things in life that are demanding. The preacher calls our attention to the roof that is sinking in. And if you get lazy, well, it'll drop in on you. You're not doing what you need to be doing. There are always things in our lives uh, that are demanding on us. One of the things I hate most in life is trying to get the, 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 the to-do list checked off, and then I can sit down in my chair at home and know there's something else I'm not getting done. I've got to get that done that I pushed off, I've set aside, I've ignored and hoped it would fix itself. I know it. And if you sit there long enough, oh, that's it. It comes to mind, right? Have you been there? Oh, I hate that feeling. For once, I wish it would really would go away, right? I could just enjoy putting my feet up. No, there's a nagging. There's something else that's demanding my attention. Yep, I got to spend time on that too. And if you hope it goes away, it doesn't. There are things that are delightful. The preacher reminds or causes us to think about bread and wine and money answers everything. There's, there's a place in life for those things that are delightful that we get to experience if you're blessed with them. And maybe it's just having something to eat this day is a blessing. And things that are dangerous. And he talks about even, don't even go to your room and whisper things about the king or about the authorities that are over you because guess what? A little bird's going to hear that and fly away and they're going to find out eventually. Even in your thoughts, even in the quiet place. Well, they're, they're, I think he's saying there really isn't any place to hide. And life in that sense, if you've got an issue or if you've got anger, or if you've got re- unresolved conflicts uh, that you kind of left there, even in your thoughts, eventually you will be found out, he's telling us. Now here's the deal. The more I think about just that passage, there are pros and cons to all of those things. The things that we have in life, there are some really good things about having demands placed on us. It pushes us forward. There's certainly delightful things that we can enjoy that God has given us. That's a message of Ecclesiastes, right? Remember that? You might as well rejoice in the things that you have right now. There are gifts from God. So you don't have to live in a cave somewhere, and don't you dare, if you do that, fine, it's up to you, but don't you dare think that makes you more spiritual just because you're denying yourself of things that are delightful. God has given them. Enjoy them. And even dangerous, there's something in us, and maybe especially with men, that we like to delve into those things that are dangerous, to test the limits, uh, to, to throw ourselves at something, and you, know, you see what happens on the other end. How fast can the car go? That kind of stuff, right? So there, there are good things, but if good things become the ultimate things, then we run into things that will destroy us in the end. And that's where he's taking us to this moment right now. The things in life that are demanding, delightful, dangerous, yep, they can be bad, they can be good, and we have to decide where is it, God, that you are leading me into. That brings us to the last two chapters that we're going to look at. Now, I said this increasing ache for something other. I ran across this quote from uh, 
Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson's uh, biography that came out just a few years ago. Sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50, maybe, but ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more. And if I find myself believing a bit more, maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife. That when you die, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom you've accumulated, somehow it lives on. And I just, I've resonated with that even. Uh, he, he's describing what, where a lot of us are, and maybe where a lot of us will be right before we know, our, if we have that opportunity to know when our time is about to be up, to think that way. I mean, it's, it's something I think God is, is part of the image of God he's placed on us. There's got to be something else that lives on. There is. Now, I don't know where he was at before God, where his heart was at. I have no clue what was going on. I just think that's very informative because that's what we all long for. It's sunk deep into us. All this effort on all the demands of life and the delights of life, even the dangerous things, they all add up. Where does it leave us? The ache for something more longs to be satisfied, whether you know Christ or not, whether you clearly understand what's going on with your life or what God's plans are. The ache for something else is real. One of my favorite quotes I know I've used it in the past. I'm going to use it again. From mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probably, this should be the probable explanation, is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, well, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. It's true. All of what Ecclesiastes keeps pointing us towards is the real thing. Everything that you've left longing for, aching, knowing that there's got to be more to this life, you're right. You are right. The people you talk to, maybe friends or family that struggle, uh, whatever the issue that arises in your conversation, and there is this weariness. This, you know, there's got to be more. I don't like this. Well, there's a reason you don't like it. It's wrong. There's something messed up. It's sin. Maybe it's your sin. Maybe it's somebody else's sin. Uh, the effects of sin are worldwide. And we take the consequences on, whether we like it or not, of somebody else's sin. It's so broken. It's so messed up. And it is right to point a finger at it and say, this is wrong. It all points us to what I consider to be the ultimate answer. Ecclesiastes suggests to us that the real thing is still out there. So, maybe you doubt that. Maybe there are questions still floating in the mind. Can that really be? Or what about this or that scenario, which brings in the whole question of doubt. What's it for? Where do I take my doubts? Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that doubt is like a foot poised in the air, okay? Uh, preparing to take a step either forward or backward. It's that moment where I have to decide what's it going to be. Now, I can choose to follow doubt and take a step back, not 
willing or ready or wanting to go anywhere else and just kind of wallow in doubt. Or you can take that foot that's poised with the questioning, with the wondering, and step forward. And that's what Spurgeon, and I would agree with him, uh, that's what he calls faith. Trust. Now, you know, there's, there's, the metaphor breaks down, the illustration breaks down quickly, but uh, there is something in us that says, I want more, and I'm going to trust that Jesus has it. Now, there, there is no, I, I would say, in that illustration, yeah, you got to put your foot down, but there, there's no effort on my part in responding in that way to Christ. There is an acknowledgement that there's an ache and there's a need and then a response to that need that says, I don't have it. I tried being God. I sucked at it. I need to move on. And Jesus, I'm going to trust that you are who you claim to be. And that then is the beginning of a new life. That is the new beginning of the rest of where we're going this month. So, the series is about finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes, so we'll end with Mark chapter 5, and there's a story of a synagogue ruler. His name is Jairus, he's given a name in Mark chapter 5, and he has a daughter who is very sick, and he has heard of Jesus, and he sends for Jesus to come, and Jesus is on his way and then gets caught up with healing somebody else. And because of that, uh, some officials, some uh, servants, come from Jairus' household and say, don't worry, she's dead. There's no more reason to come to the home. Let me stop there for a second. You know, all this talk about faith and taking the next, next step, it's, it may be easier to say, I'll take the step, I'll believe you, Christ, when things are fairly simple or, or good, and life has found me in a good place, it's quite different in the midst of doubt or struggle, or in Jairus's case, uh, what I asked you to do, Lord, you didn't do. You didn't make it in time. She's gone. Now what? Now what do I do? That's where a whole lot of us find ourselves. Now, maybe it's not the exact same situation, but in the situation where it seems like God has failed me, in the immediate sense, he didn't answer. He wasn't there with what I felt like I needed at the time. So while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear. What is he fearing? She's already gone. I believe Jesus is looking straight into the heart of this guy. And as difficult and as painful and as horrible as losing his daughter was at that moment, there's even more going on in his heart. Underneath all that he's struggling with in the immediate sense is a fear and a doubt and, and, and a distrust 
that God is who he is and God can uh, do what needs to be done because he didn't do it when I needed it. He wasn't there when I needed it most. But God is still at work. Jesus' response, he doesn't say here are all the answers. Um, Jesus doesn't, well, he removes some of the suffering because he does raise his daughter back to life. But I, I really think the meat of this interaction and what's going on in this gospel account is prior to this girl coming back to life, honestly. That's an awesome miracle. If we, if, we, if we dwell on just the miracles, then we think that, well, God's supposed to come through with miracles all the time. That's the point, right? Uh, most of us don't get miracles like that in our lives. So we can't go to that as the point. That's the point. Do you trust me? And, just back to that illustration of the foot, he had to then follow Jesus. So even physically, he has to make a choice in the family as Jesus goes back into that room. Will you trust me now when you don't want to? When it looks like I failed you, will you believe me in your deepest, the darkest hour of need? Will you trust? And at that moment, you can't say it was about me or my level of trust. Are you kidding me? There's anger there, and there's fear there. I have to come to a point, by the power of God working in me, I'm going to believe, even though everything else in me says, put the foot the other direction. I'm going to believe even in what is impossible, because she's dead. But Jesus says, take heart, he's what? He's overcome. Not only has he overcome death, but he's even overcome your fear and your doubt, making it possible to respond in faith. That's what Jesus does. The beginning of faith, of trusting in Jesus, then brings about a response to the demanding and delightful and dangerous stuff. It brings about this glorious response at the end of this book that leads us towards boldness and joyfulness and even godliness. I cannot wait to go there with you. But all of that is a response to this. We have to see Ecclesiastes taking us to the point where I need to respond. I don't have the strength to do it. But Jesus, I know that you're enough, even in the midst of the darkest doubt, for me to finally come to a point that I can trust you. Is Jesus enough for my belief? I hope you're saying yes this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, do a new work in our hearts and in our minds. Draw us to your throne of grace. Convince us, Lord, even if we have been in a place of doubt and distrust and the struggles of life and the yearning and the weariness that we have, find us in that moment and save us. Draw our attention and warm our hearts and our affections to the only one who has the ultimate answer to all of life's struggles if we will respond in faith. Lord, we recognize 
that we, even though we want all those things to have a nice, easy, happy ending, that you're at work at something greater and more wonderful and more lasting. That responding in faith doesn't mean I've got all my answers to every one of my questions. It just means I choose to trust that you have the answers and that you are worth following and even worth worshiping as God, as Savior, as Redeemer of all things. So Lord, open up our hearts and minds to trust you more this morning, to respond in faith to you, and to follow where you would take us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the rest of Ecclesiastes, where the uh, message is taking us, where the preacher is taking us, takes us this morning to this table that is before me. Now, if you're new, if you're wondering um, you know, what we do with, uh, with communion and, and all of that, then let me just tell you real quick. Uh, you don't have to be a member of this church to be a part of this table. You just need to be a member of the body of Christ, which means you are even now taking that step of faith, that you are placing your trust in Christ, that your efforts at being God uh, have failed, and you are going to now trust Jesus to be God uh, and his work of redemption that runs through the cross through an empty tomb, and now lives in you today, then if that's you, this table's for you. The bread and the juice, they remind us of what Christ did completely for us. So uh, let's read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul reminds us of these things. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you come this morning, you can do it as you want. You can spend some time right where you're seated to reflect and pray. That's up to you. Uh, we've got two or three songs, right? So uh, you've got that, that time to, to sing or to, to reflect or to come right away. It's totally up to you. You can take the bread and juice here at the table. You can take it back to your seat. Again, that's up to you as we close our time in worship. But remember this. There's no way you make yourself good enough for this. It kind of defeats the whole thing. We come in remembrance and in joy, knowing that what he did on the cross and the empty tomb make us, restore us, form us, save us, so that we can enjoy what he has done in fellowship together. Remember those things um, before you come. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more of our sermon audio, check out our previous podcast, Tomb Runners. For upcoming events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org. Bruce Bentley will be back next week to continue the series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. 